The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. There is a time There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Showtime! Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going. The main thing is to settle in tonight, kick back in your most comfy chair. Have we got an incredible, true story for you tonight? Don't go anywhere, folks. This is going to be riveting. I want to welcome Tom Reed to the show for the very first time and not certainly the last time. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us tonight. Th- thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you, you having me. I, um, I, uh, I'm getting ready for Contact in the Desert, and with that said, I have a, a completely different uh, PowerPoint for Contact, and I'm focusing a lot more on Sheffield and Great Barrington, so I'm glad you started with that because uh, I, I think it's important that... Uh, that everyone really realizes and gets the true uh, uh, insight and and the events accurate because there has been so much uh, media and television around this and you go online and you see things about our case and and it's really becoming uh, overly sensationalized. How so? Are people just trying to uh, jump on a bandwagon, so to speak, and write? Well, there were some things said like, uh, you know, 50 years of abductions and and this kind of thing and it that's not it at all there was a 50-year span you know and um, there were some things said that uh, you know that I sued the or we tried to sue the uh, United Nations you never ever said anything like that you know so I think that for tonight I I couldn't be uh, happier actually I got a lot of my documents and so on here so I really do want to clear the air and 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 um, get this back to the soup and nuts of it, if, if you will. Absolutely. Let's talk about contact in the desert just to set it up, and then we'll jump in right away from there. How's that, Tom? Sure. Okay, contact in the desert, folks, is taking place at the end of May 2015, May 29th to 31st, in a place called Joshua Tree. Now, Joshua Tree, folks, is in California near Palm Springs, and it's a heavy hitter conference. Uh Stanton Friedman's going to be there, Kathleen Martin, Patty Greer, uh, Jim Mars, I'm trying to think of somebody, uh, Marshall Klarfeld's going to be there. All these great people are going to be there, including Tom Reed, all with one specific message, and that is contact. Not only personal contact with you, because you can get to meet and greet with these folks, but also contact 
from somewhere else off the planet, if you will. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight with Tom and Tom's story. Uh, could you imagine being six years old and all of a sudden, oof, you're gone. Tom, can you take us back to that night and walk sure. us through? Sure. Um, in 1967, um, well, let me let me start with this. We, we had an 80-acre horse farm on one of the highest points of uh, Sheffield and Beckett. Massachusetts are almost 3,000 uh, feet high, and it's surrounded by a lot of command aerospace, uh, Sikorsky, uh, Pratt & Whitney, GE, electric boat is only a little ways away. So there's been a lot of speculation about, um, you know, some of the military that was seen there on and off and, and all the, you know, manufacturing facilities for, the, you know, that, you know, and, uh, and so on. So our property, even though we had 80 acres, was still not a lot of property to own back then. I mean, there are people that own over 1,000 acres in Sheffield. It's very rural. But the 80 acres we had were pretty high up. And so we've wondered if that played a role or a part in it. But to get right to the incident, um, in 66, my brother and I first had our first uh, sighting, if you will. But it wasn't until 1967 where our whole family got a taste of it, if you will. My brother was on a top bunk, I was on the bottom, and we had a, a pretty, um, it was a farmhouse. So, you know, our, our room had the old uh, farm handles on it where you lifted them up, you know, the old style door handles, and there were hinges on the, on a lot of the, uh, what would be like almost a trap door, if you will, on the side of the, of the room, and we had one closet. We had a radiator. We didn't have any air conditioning. Uh, we had a brook that ran outside that we used to listen to when we went to bed. And outside that window in that brook, there was nothing. There was a some trees and a field, and and there was there was nothing back there. And so that night, we felt, and we've described this the best that we can, is if uh, you were going out. And uh, you know it was a full moon, and you're going out with your friends, you're, you know, you're having a drink or something, and and you just have that energy of a full moon. Well, if you were to triple that, so it was like three full moons, and then you add a little anxiety, and then there's like this electromagnetic vibe or fe something you feel in your skin, and then if you've ever been in a hurricane, where you've got that lighter feeling, that barometric change in pressure. So if you have this lighter feeling, you're more alive, yet you have like this weird tingling feeling, it doesn't sound all that disturbing, but if you felt that all at once, it, it was just like something was way off. And, and my brother was so nervous, he curled up. He told me later, in like the fetal position in the corner of the room was a blanket, and I was focused out this window. Now, I couldn't see the top part of the window because the way the bunk bed hung. So I hung off the side of the bunk bed, and there was a ladder there. And I was looking between the ladder and around the ladder, and I was looking at this ring that almost looked like a hula hoop. I just, and then want, it Tom, I just wanted to tell you, every time you go like this on the microphone, all we hear is your uh, scritchies. So if you could just try and avoid doing that. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay, buddy. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to be very descriptive. Um, That's okay, buddy. No, okay. I, I, yeah. So, so at six, six years old, this is overwhelming, these feelings. 
it's, it's well, it was, yeah, we, I was looking around the, the ladder and, and looking out the window to that, what looked like a little disc of a, a hula hoop, like a blue and, and white light, and I was fixated on it. And uh, next thing I know, I, I, it, my brother said it burst into the room like it was fired into the room or shot into the room. All I remember is being engulfed in what felt like an ocean wave because of the weight that hit my chest. I felt uh, like I flipped. I didn't go forward. I went off to the right, you know, like, but I was completely inverted. So I went from laying in the bed to realizing I was standing up. So I don't know how long this was. I was young. But I remember laying down, standing up now, and then being completely inverted. All within, I don't know, three or four seconds. Uh, I, I really can't remember, but I can tell you that I remember standing vividly. And I remember the feeling of being tossed. And I was hit in the chest. And uh, you know that bubble wrap you, when you want to mail something? That was those air pockets. I felt like I was wrapped in almost like that bubble wrap because I really couldn't move anything. Nothing, my arms weren't flapping around or anything. I just felt wrapped in this white pocket whitewash. And that was the last thing that I remember from the home. Now, my brother ran down the ladder and, and went in to try to wake my mother. She wouldn't respond. Um, it was a long time after before. She finally, my brother was between the wall, kicking her with his feet, trying to get her to wake up. My grandmother was in the room with him because we had an elderly aunt. She had leukemia. She was from Hollis, Queens. that took over another room. So being that my mother was single at the time, a lot of people don't know that, my grandmother bunked in the master with her that night. And she was in there for months, you know, until, until we were daisy past. But um, so they neither one would respond. And then... As my mother finally came to, if you will, or came out of this, whatever it was, my brother was like, you know, Tom's gone, Tom's gone. And so she followed him across the top of the staircase. And then it was like a bunch of doors slamming is the best way that she describes it. I wasn't there, but like doors all boom, 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 simultaneously. And then my next thing my mother knows, Matthew's missing. So she she saddled the horse. She ran um, up to the, you know, the stable and got her horse and rode around the property looking for us. My grandmother went on to the uh, screen porch and we had floodlights because we had a farm. So we had floods on the pole and the side of the house and the stable and everything. So she hit all the floodlights. We were nowhere to be long. You know, what are they going to think? You know, my, my parents got the outside where they looked in the house, you know, where would they be? And we had, like I said, 80 acres, but we had a, a hay baler that was so far up the hill that, you know, it was a long way anyway. You're thinking maybe it's, I don't know, 15 acres maybe, up there. And that was like a no-pass zone for my brother and I, in case we fell off the horse or whatever. And my mother, you know, you couldn't yell, you know. So we were not allowed to go past a hay baler. Well, this particular night, I remember being, and I know how this sounds, but I remember seeing this craft that looked like a turtle shell is the best way that I've been able to describe it. And I actually have a, rendition of it right here running behind me um and uh and this is basically what my brother and i saw if you can see that is that big enough or should i get closer or? if you can come closer maybe by about uh, a foot yep that'll work and there was a uh 
there was a broken tree or looked like a a, a tree that made a, a V, almost like a wishbone. And there was a large rock. Uh, I'm going to say it was about five or six or maybe ten feet high. You know, I was little, so I'm, you know everything seems bigger to me. And it was almost like a boulder to the left. And we were we came down this little bit of a path, and it dropped off. And there it was behind this tree that split like a V. And um, and we were I, we were I don't want to say taken on it because we were really engulfed, and we were just going with whatever this was. And and it was the strangest thing because, you know, we've tried to make sense out of why we were so cooperative. Why were we going along with whatever this was? And later on, we, you know, we've been able to uh, identify ELF, electromagnetic fields. And they were actually on my brother's car later on, and Robert Bletchman took it to the UN. That was one of the things that he found of interest. So we're, we're wondering if that ELF stimulated the neurons, caused a calming effect, why we, we were so dead silent. And I think there there's some a lot of truth to that. So if that's the case, then we were just following instruction. And being young, we we you know, uninhibited, we just went with whatever this was. And and I remember seeing this thing and it was probably fifteen I'm gonna say fifteen, eighteen feet high. And it and I say a turtle shell too because it looked alive. It didn't look chrome and polished like you see on you. No. It, it was rounded on top. It had some type of lines in it, which looked like a turtle shell. I don't know if it was squares or lines. I can't remember. But it looked, it was etched in, in, with lines. And, and when it came down, it was very round around the side. It didn't come to a point. It almost looked like a, like a tire, like if you took a tire not when it stuck out, but just that lip, like a protective rubber-like type of thing. Although it wasn't rubber, I'm just saying that gave it that appearance of a tire rounded edge around it. And there was no landing gear on the thing. There were some lights coming from somewhere, enough that I could see. And uh, and we were we were uh, taken inside. Um, how that happened, it's fragmented. I don't know. I remember seeing a figure. I don't know if it was human, not human. It looked somewhat human, resembled a human. And that was the last thing I remember about about being outside of it. Then I remember this area that was about 15 by 15. Uh, it was uh, very bright, like a lot of people reference that, but it was. It was all white and bright. And um, we didn't really hear any noise. My brother said he, f he felt like a rhythmic type of thing. Uh, I, I don't really remember that, but um, he does. And it, when you walked, it was very quiet, almost in the best way to describe what it seemed like. And that's a long time ago, but to give you an idea, you go to the dollar store and you get those little rubber pieces to take a top off. It was almost like if you were walking on that, very bright, and it was very uh, quiet. Um, and yet, every time we went somewhere or were taken somewhere, and we were, everything seemed to be like in zones, there was an individual to my left that walked me out this area, about the size of my room right here, went out to the right, and this hallway turned like almost like a question mark. And when I passed my brother, now my brother was taken out. I was actually first when we were walking down outside this thing, yet... He, we must have been separated for a little bit of time there because I actually walked by him. So he was in the inside further than me. 
but he had a club foot. He had a brace on his leg, too, so maybe there was some attention given to that. He thinks there might have been. We don't remember all of it. We remember lots of it, but... So I was taken around him, and when I walked by him, he had a figure next to him, which, again, looked somewhat human. And when I went around to the, the top of this, uh, or taken to the top of this thing, I was released. The individual went back, I don't know how far, but, I mean, he, he left me. And then I was with this other individual, and I was standing in this, in this darker area of this room that had a couple of tables that were very bronze, not chrome, bronze, almost like a brown and um, and and that's really what I can remember from being in that vessel. Now, we remember both of us coming or being uh, coming to staring at each other. You know, my brother was lower in the yard. He was almost in the driveway. I was closer to the stable, so I was higher up than him because it was on a hill. And I'm going to guess maybe 15, 20 feet away from him. And we were kind of locked looking at each other. Now, both of us felt very, uh, I could see him and I could see my mother come out. And we were staring at each other. Yet my mother says that we were almost like comatose. You know, we were very placid. But we could see, but we weren't really moving or acting out or acting like children. We were very um, complacent and just kind of there. So our minds were working, but our bodies maybe weren't really responding. And so she took us in the house. She gave us baby aspirin, wiped us down with towels. Uh, my brother was playing with a soda bottle top, one of those tin soda uh, Coca-Cola tops. Mm -hmm. um, my mother took us into the uh, living room uh, we slept on the sofa, or I slept on the sofa, my brother slept on the love seat, and she started a fire, and she used to have those uh, things you throw in the fire to add, make colors, I don't know if you remember those or not, and she tried to get us to uh, help her throw those in, and we had a bellows, and she was trying to get us to, you know, kind of, you know, act normal, and, uh, or come out of whatever this was, and that was 67, I mean, that's really what happened in 67, now, that was so bothersome to my mother that she first started voicing that at the Village on the Green restaurant that we owned in town. And to give you an idea how small the town is, there's no middle school. <laughs> you go from fourth grade to high school, and which is where we got into some problems. <laughs> uh, we we're pretty small to be going into high school with a, with a history like this. So um, my mother, um, pretty much she, she owned the Village Green, but uh, my grandmother ran it. And we would go in, uh, ride in with her early and have breakfast. You know, we'd have, you know, whatever we wanted for breakfast. And it was kind of neat. And I had that big banana seat bike, you know, way back then, you know. the Yeah, it was kind of neat. And uh, all the kids in town kind of hung out there because we were kind of known for like the 25-cent shakes, the coffee shakes, the ice creams. It was the only spot in town, really. I mean, you, you had a gas station, a church, a post office, a little tiny police office, I think, that wasn't much bigger than, you know, than your closet. And I don't even think in a jail cell. Maybe just to process paperwork and bring it to the other town. So it was really small. And um, there we had Silks, um, which was a, a shop there that sold. It was like a convenience store. And that was it. Um, the school, a library, and there wasn't anything else there. It was pretty boring. But um, it was only moments from Great Barrington, which was a much bigger town. And 
just on the other side of Great Barrington is where Story Musgrave lived. You remember the astronaut? Story, actually, Story Musgrave, Arlo Guthrie, Norman Rockwell, Come and on. our family all lived within probably 10 miles of each other. That's unbelievable. By yeah. the way, Story was just on three weeks ago. It's in the What's archives, that? folks. Story Musgrave was just on three oh, weeks ago. Oh, is that ago. right? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk with him in contact. He might go back to Great Barrington and Sheffield with me this fall. Um, but anyway, so, so what happened, um, to, to really kind of give you an idea how this was for us, my mother started getting harassed a lot at the restaurant. You know, they would come in, you know, the, the bigger guys, you know, the farmer guys, you know, and if you want to see something out of this world, Nancy, well, we'll show you something. You know, that kind of, kind of pig type thing, you know, the unnecessary remarks. And it got to be to the point that my mother would always comment about this table of four that would come in and just be rude and, and because my mother was trying to talk to people because she didn't really know how to deal with this you know you know this is what happened and and I think you know at the time it was kind of like whispered you know that she'd whisper it to her friends you know but it got around and, and it kind of you know people were making fun and and there were sometimes my mother would tell us I don't remember this but she would say that there were people that blocked the door coming in they wouldn't allow them to eat and so the town was kind of divided but then in 1969, which is how our case got inducted in, you know, the first UFO case ever in the United States to be formally inducted as a true event, happened two years later. And when that took place, a lot of the, those who were involved in that restaurant scene or would come there to eat, they changed their tune because it was witnessed by a lot of people. And so you had a lot of people now all of a sudden... You know, I'm sorry, Nancy, you know, we should have, you know, I know it was hard for people back then to accept, but when so many other people witnessed it in 69, you know, it changed, it basically saved the reputation of our family. But to my mother, the damage was already done. You know, when she needed people to be by her side, they weren't there. So that's why we moved to Great Barrington. And that's why Great Barrington formally inducted it, because that was like our, our, our fresh start. Then it was only maybe two miles from Sheffield, but it was a different school district, the whole thing. So what happened in 69? Well, 1969, I was leaving a 4-H, um, I was riding in a 4-H uh, horse show. And, um, and my saddle came loose. I've told this before. Um, and I, I mentioned the saddle coming loose because we left early. You know, I, I didn't stay for the entire competition. I got a brown ribbon and I was... Uh, Kind of, I was disappointed, you know, and, you know, you're with other friends from school now and, and that, you know, at least, you know, you don't want to, a brown is not good. Blue, red, not brown. And so my mother uh, said, well, uh, why don't I take you out and, and get you an ice cream or something? So she took me to a place called the Meadows, which is right on Route 7. Uh, it's still there today. I think it's closed down, but the building is still there today. And we sat on picnic tables in the back and I had a burger or whatever. And she got me some of those fireballs and, you know. And um, be, because it was Labor Day, we had our cook locking up the restaurant. So they decided to go to, go to our Village on the Green restaurant and make sure it was locked up and do the night deposit drop. And so she did. She went to the back door. We made the night deposit drop. And we were heading back to our farm on Boardman Street. And we had just gone over what, what is referred to or still today called the Sheffield Bridge. And as soon as we got over the bridge, it was this line of trees on the left-hand side. And my grandmother turned around because she saw me giving candy to my younger brother and thought, well, he's too young, he could choke kind of thing, you know. And, um, and so she saw these lights, 
and and it really was lit up. I can't remember distinctively, but I remember, you know, just there's not again, there's nothing there but swampland and you know water and you can't really even walk there. I mean, it's swampy. And yeah, well, it was all lit up. And there's nothing there. I mean, when I say there's nothing there, I mean, you know, nothing. I mean, it's just still to this day, you know, 40 years later, it, there's still nothing there. And bang, it was like lights everywhere. And and I looked off to the right because I was looking to my brother to get the candy back, I guess. I can only guess or assume. And I saw like what looked like an orangey glow or 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 off to the right. And so I'm looking over this way to the in the back and it was it it was like all open with water and swampy stuff and there were hills and little spots of trees and there was this big orangey glow thing. So I'm looking over this way. Next thing I know, the car had come to a stall or off the right side of the road. We heard stones on the it was very just like the the bedroom thing where you got that lift, all of a sudden it gets quiet, you don't hear anything. It's that weird feeling again, and it was just like a dead calm, and the car just came to a, a, a slow roll off to the side. My mother doesn't know if she stopped it, if it just stalled. We really don't know. It was a long time ago, but it did come to a stop where it was a wider spot in the road, so I have a feeling she was probably trying to pull off, and then it stalled. And then it was just, again, it was just, dead it was no, nothing you couldn't hear anything and then bang this eruption of crickets and cadians and frogs or whatever these it was just loud it was so loud you couldn't it was unbelievable and then boom we're, we're not in the car anymore next thing i remember i'm in what looks like a, a hangar almost like an airplane hangar it was open it was uh it, it was like the size of a football field if, if not bigger and I couldn't really see much. There were carts. Now, this is where it gets interesting. There were carts to my right. Now, if this was a football field, I'd be at like the three to five yard line on, on one corner. So there was a wall not far from me, there was a wall behind me, and it was all open off to the left. But there were silver carts, just like, and I, I, again, I reference things from school, just like we would put the projector on. You know, that's how I referenced it. So it, it looked like a utility cart. And that was the only thing I saw in there. And maybe because it was shiny, I happened to see it. I didn't see anything else. Then there was an opening uh, ahead of me. Um, and, and there was a light. Someone came in. Um, before, in 67, I felt very uh, engaged, very uh, um, in tune or, or not fighting, whatever was happening this time I was very nervous and it was very different it was very uh, militant and orchestrated and and at least it felt that way maybe it was because I was I was uh, more conscious but uh, I walked to this person and I was grabbed by my left arm very hard very hard it hurt I was taken out the door um, almost pushed and uh, out this door was it went to the right, very high ceilings. Um, I'm gonna guess uh, again, I was younger, but it seemed almost twice as high as the ceilings in our home. Um, and I was taken out this hallway that went to the right. It came to a T, and this was not windy, it was very simple by design. I was 
So I went out the store, took a right, took a left, and then I was brought into a room that had that concaved inward, almost like a can, like a big coffee can, you know. And um, I there was a little bit of a spot to sit. I was put on this lower table to sit. I wasn't laying down. I was sitting on it. And there were two um, people off to the the right. And again, I say they look human. They they had human features. I'm not going to say they look like your typical gray because they didn't. They had a small chin, if I remember right. They were a little just odd enough that they didn't look like normal people, but they weren't like. But they did have like eyewear or dark eyewear. I would think that that's what it was. So they did resemble what people describe, but they looked very human to me. And and at the time, when being a child, I had no other reference anyway. You know what else would they be? But still to this day, I think that they were very human, um, hybrid maybe. I don't know. But um, there were, actually, there were two at the bottom. There were a couple behind me. I'm going to guess there were four or five of them around me. Um, but there were these two what looked like insects. And I keep referencing these. Uh, looked like an ant. Had a, had a head of a red ant. Um, had very stick-like legs. It was... Uh, had almost a teardrop body. The arms and legs kind of stemmed from the same thing. Um, as a child, maybe it looked like a little bit like a spider, but I, after looking at the sketches I made as a child and, and talking to my brother and going online and all the research we've done with books, it looked like an ant. Um, that's really what it looked like, an ant on two legs. And Alien Mysteries really kind of cornballed that up because it didn't look anything really like what they showed. Um, I've got a, a drawing here of, if you can see this, the... That's good. Little, Actually, a little bit to your left. Yeah, and down a little bit. Well, the black little one there is what I drew as a child. Okay. And that is what I paid an awful lot for an illustrator to, to work with me on. Okay. But that is actually very similar or close to what we saw. And for the longest time, I'd said to myself, how would anyone believe that? But that is what we saw. It had human hands. It was under intelligent control. It was, in my opinion, probably something that was uh, engineered or a designer type of being for a particular function. But it, um, it didn't really respond to, my, to me. I, I, it, one, it turned, one turned its head for a moment. It was like we were not even there, you know. But it was staring at a wall. It never really moved. Um, it lowered and raised itself a little bit. But, that, you know, nothing much more than that. But when it turned to me, I ran out the, the right side of this bowed-in area, and I got into this huge hallway. Now, this hallway was bigger than a basketball court. And it had two hallways off to the right that you could drive, like a two-lane highway, if not wider. And then off to the left, it was much wider, almost like a four- to six-lane highway. So, and then the walls bowed outward. Remember I said that room bowed inward? It was, to, it was because the hallway was a big circle with two hallways off to one side and a big one that looked like it filtered out, almost like it was going to take traffic from the right and filter them into the bottom. It's really what it looked like. And then it bowed outward maybe to handle the flow of traffic, of whatever it was. But that's what it seemed to me to be. And I ran out to this thing. I don't know where to go. I heard some voices. I, I, I've mentioned before, I, I, um, I believe it was my mother. 
my mother did say she was crying out for us or calling our names. Um, it's hard to say. I, I, in Alien Mysteries, said my brother was with me. My brother wasn't with me. I was by myself in this room. Um, but uh, I was brought back in and uh, laid on this table, and this cage-like apparatus came out of the ceiling. Um, it was in two parts. Uh, the top part was uh, rounder. The bottom part was like a cage. It uh, kept me pretty much in place. Um, the second one came over it, and there were holes in the side of it, and these um, what looked like uh, raisin packs, I guess, would be the best way to describe it, were put on my body. And my, one was put on my mouth. I felt a bump to the head, and uh, an alien mystery showed him putting rocks on me. I don't know what that was about. But um, and that, then I was back in the, uh, the big room, and I'm back in the car. And we all kind of, um, I'm going to guess, came back around the same time. Now there's two, uh, now here's another problem. We, uh, my mother was not in the driver's seat. My mother, when we got back in the car, my grandmother had been the only one conscious. So, and she was in the driver's seat. So she went and immediately drove back to town because it's the only place open, the only spot with people. Again, our house was out in the middle of nowhere. You want to get some help. So she just turned the car around, or did she? My grandmother wasn't sure if the car was already faced that way, or did she turn it around, you know? And for the longest time, she thought the car, she actually gave testimony at one point that the car was turned around. And because she wasn't sure, you know, she was in disarray. But my father would say, you know, do you really think aliens can drive Bel Air station wagons? So again, there's a, what really happened? Was there a military influence? Was something joint? But she went back to town and um, went to pulled in in front of Silk's um, convenience store, um, general store, uh, went in the, was out of the car. Um, I came to, I was the second one to wake up. And I saw her out the window just before she went in. I got out. I was calling her name, Nana, Nana. I went to grab her. She went up the stairs. She went into the store. She went straight to the back, got wrapped up in these bikes and carriages. I tried to grab her hand. Um, she, uh, I don't know why, because I couldn't pull her through the bikes, but I was grabbing her hand. And, um, and the clerk came out, and, or not came out, but, I mean, he took notice my grandmother came back around. They talked for a moment. I think he was probably asking if she's okay. And uh, we went back out of the out of Silks. Um, I don't know if she accomplished anything going there, but she probably told him that something had happened again. Because um, this was no secret in town that we were having something going on. But they didn't believe it at the time. And they did, but they didn't. You know what I mean. Um, they didn't know what to think. And uh, so we, we drove back to the house, and I'm going to guess maybe, I don't know, three or four days later, um, we had heard that a lot of people saw this craft. Now, it did was given a Hynek classification. It was given a CE-1, just a CE-1 back then, but it was issued a Hynek classification during the years of Project Blue Book, September of 1969. There were about five or six people from Egremont. There's a big country club in Egremont that gave testimony. 
There are people that called the police department. There were those who called WSBS radio, whose letter's still in Roswell today. Um, there were calls that came in over the next couple of weeks. People were talking about it, you know, in school, you know, you name it. And then, um, you know, kids were drawing things in school, little green men from Mars, you know, all that kind of thing. And then our restaurant became like the hub. People started hanging out at our restaurant and talking about it. And, um, and so that, like I said, it kind of saved the reputation of my mother, but she, she sold it. We sold the farm. Um, we sold the farm after I, after I hit my mother in the eye with a fork. She came in one night to give me a kiss goodnight, and I used to sleep with a fork. And um, I was scared, I guess, and she came in that second time and went, leaned over me, and I lunged up, and I think that was, hey, you know, they've gone through enough. And um, so we moved to Great Barrington, and, um, you know, school was great. We had a good time there where everything was pretty pretty good. Uh, but, of course, you know, it wasn't far outside Sheffield, so there, you know, the rumors were still there. You know, people still talked about it. And because it went out on WSBS radio, which was in Great Barrington, um, you know, the the uh, the past stayed with us a little bit, but it was still a a more uh, upbeat, modern crowd. And um, it wasn't the farm, you know, that farming community. And um, so anyway, we uh, when my father passed his bar, we decided to move to Connecticut and he ran for office and he did two terms and he was backed by Senator Dodd or he was endorsed by Senator Dodd had coffee at Governor Weicker's house um, or the governor's mansion across from Elizabeth Park in Hartford, West Hartford. And um, I had to stay in the kitchen. He got to go in the living room. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, so... Uh, what happened to your dad? Yeah, while he was in office, um, he uh, met a lot of people. And he met this guy, Robert Bletchman who actually uh, used to work for the Center for UFO Studies and was friends with Jalen Hynek. And, um, and so even though this was behind us and my father wasn't married to my mother at the time that it happened, he was a good friend, kind of kept the peace at the Village on the Green as well, you know, because he was a New Yorker, you know, you want to take that to go, sir? <laughs> you know what I mean? Then, you know, shut up or you're taking it when you leave. And, uh, and so he was a, he had a voice. And um, nice guy, really good guy, good heart. And uh, so he met Robert Bletchman, I think, at a mixer in Hartford at Hampton Inn or something, or Holiday Inn, and, um, and gave me his uh, information. And come to find out, Robert Bletchman's office was only about half a mile from where I lived. And I had a condo in Manchester, Connecticut, and this law firm was right, up, right down the road. And so I'd, on Fridays, he used to get out of work early, so I'd run over to his office and would talk. And I'd sit in his office. He had a big picture in the back of a, a UFO underneath water, which was a shot taken by an officer um, with a respected Hudson River Valley case. So he started talking about that and how he had something big coming up and how was my father had talked to him a little bit about what happened, and he wanted me to kind of uh, you know, open up a little bit. And over time, I did. And we got into... Uh, you know, the whole thing, you know, what exactly happened. And he found it really interesting um, about the barometric change in pressure and how, and, and the effects of the environment and how everything went quiet. And, and because he was working with Cash and Landerman, remember they had, used to had something, had something with their vehicle, you know, where there was something that went on outside. 
he liked that part of our case and the fact that it was given a Heineck classification or the craft scene performing acrobatical movements unknown to conventional aircraft over our farm. Now, our name wasn't Reed back then. It was Burroughs. But uh, at the same time, you know, because my mother got remarried, um, but it was our farm. And so we really found it interesting and just said, uh, you know, I got something big coming up. Would you mind if I mentioned your case, you know? And so we talked to my dad, and they're both lawyers, so as long as you don't tarnish the name, you know, don't blast it all over the place. Sure, go ahead. And now my dad was out of office. He still had aspirations, I think judge of probate or something, but nothing major. And so uh, Robert mentioned our case in support of others um, on October 2nd, 1992, at the United Nations. It was, wasn't in front of General Assembly. It was just in front of a, you know, uh, I think it was, some of it was in a library, you know. Um, you know, Stanton was there. Linda Morton Howell was there. And uh, Bud Hopkins, our attorney, which we legally retained. You know, there's a legal retainer for him. And... Um, and uh, so it, it got mentioned. It was 33426 was what it was, um, was the main topic that these cases went under, which was an idea to have a unified agency of some sort that everyone could filter their information to and pull from. And, um, and that was the end of it. You know, we thought, okay, it's over and done with. And, um, and then um, in 2006, my father... Um, or I should say 2005, actually. I should back up a little bit. My father came down to Florida. I used to live right outside Boca. So I owned Miami Models in South Beach. And so I, my house was about 45 minutes outside Miami. And um, my father came up, and he also had a boat, my Hutchinson Island. So we used to go out on, this, on the sloop. And we started talking about, you know, uh, when you want to do your book. And... Um, because he always said when the time was right, we could talk about it. When time was right, we'd do a book. And, uh, and so I kind of pushed him a little bit. You know, we should do this, you know. And we're not getting any younger, you know. And, uh, and so we, we decided that, yeah, why don't we? And, and so he had gotten a lot of information over the years, a lot of paperwork that was stamped four and five days after the UN address and with a red stamp, you know. I don't know what he had. I mean, I, I still have everything, I think. Um, I'm sure there was some things that I don't have, but I have a lot. I've got a good size, you know, bunch of documents that he had. And um, everything from sign to Project Blue Book to, you know, the Ministry of Defense talking about this and, and um, you know, the Greece Ministry of Defense talking about uh, F-4 fighter jet, jets uh, paralyzed to fire on to oncoming UFOs, you know, all kinds of stuff. And... So it's in black and white that this stuff actually, you know, the government knows about it and has for a long time because some of that, those documents go back to the 70s. And um, so anyway, uh, I go to work after, you know, um, I actually had gone to a MUFON conference and some other things in, uh, in the area and were mentioning the book. I get hit by a tractor trailer truck parked at a stop sign. I'm left for dead. I... Uh, Broken back, broken ankles, sewed my eye in, knocked my teeth out, broke fingers. Um, my father comes flying back in Florida, and um, I mean, I, was, I couldn't walk to the bathroom. Uh, I had block injections, I had surgeries, I had deep vein phlebitis, fractured knee, I almost died. And I was parked at a light going to the work the same way I always did. 
And um, so anyway, uh, while my dad comes in and my mother and everybody just stay with me for a couple of weeks, um, we decide, yes, we're, again, going to move forward with this book. So I started to push, push him a little bit. What else was I going to do? I'm laying there, right? So he goes back to Connecticut, and about five or six months after he left, my father gets killed on the same day, October 2nd, 2006, but 14 years later. So if my accident wasn't bizarre enough, his was. So the mayor of Bridgeport, who was a friend of my father's, calls in the CDC from Atlanta. Now, Atlanta didn't go in. They hired a third-party contracting company outside of, in, in Connecticut, outside of Bridgeport, to come in and evaluate the, the building. Uh, they found that uh, there was something... Uh, what they believed was uh, recently broken into an air conditioning unit, a big one outside his office. His computer was wiped out. His Mount Blanc pen was stolen. There were new ceiling tiles in the ceiling for whatever reason. doesn't make sense because he had, you know, he, there was no work order to have those done. And, um, and so uh, the doctors, um, when my father um, went to work that day, perfectly healthy. My father was 56. He went into work, his head went down, broke out in a sweat, temperature skyrocketed. They rushed him to Yale New Haven Hospital. He was a public figure. There is a proclamation in our family's honor. There is a local holiday dedicated to our family. That's true. There's also a bench in the city green, a commemorative bench in honor of my father. And my father was a politician and he was a lawyer. So when he went to the hospital, he received the best care. He was a big shot in the area. So what's the first thing they do? They give him a lot of antibiotics. Get that temperature down, right? His temperature went up. They gave him a different bunch of antibiotics, and it put him into cardiac, cardiac shock, and he died. Now, he died because he had a rare fungus in his blood undetectable until the autopsy. So when you gave him the antibiotics, you killed the good bacteria that would fight the fungus. His body couldn't keep up with it. It grew too fast. Next thing, he's got a tube down his throat. He can't breathe, and he, he passes. But on the same day. Now, if that wasn't bizarre enough, they condemned the building. The building's been shut down to this day. That building has not been reopened. And that was, what, 13, 14 years ago. Now, Bletchman supposedly died from natural causes not long afterwards. Um, it's possible he did. But the doctor, Michael Buckner, who evaluated my, my brother, my son, and, you know, was our doctor here, had gone public with some of what he thought was, was unique. You know, um, he went public with it. And so Detective White... At the time, Steve White was a detective, um, wanted uh, to see if he would speak out on what he, what he found, because I had taken a polygraph test by then, you know, and that kind of thing. And he was actually, I asked him, I said, would you like to go to a MUFON conference and talk about it? You know, just get something going, because I was very adamant about showing my father didn't die for nothing. And Michael Buckner wrote that my son tested higher than coincidental chance, um, that had, had showed signs of remote viewing. Um, the marks in my brother's chest were very odd. 
that they're right over the thymus gland, you know, where the, there's a thymus gland, there's a part of it that, that produces T cells when you're young, which is how your body starts to build its immune system. And there's a link to the right ear. And he had two puncture wounds behind the right ear, two not far off from the thymus gland, right around the rib cage area. So if you wanted to hypothetically extract T cells, you could go right there. And if you wanted to um, get to the other side of the, where the T cells are sent to the brain or triggered for how much immune, you know, it, it's the governing part that drives how much of the T cells and are manufactured and everything are here. So there was a connection between the, where the T cells were manufactured in those wounds. So he writes a, a statement or two or doctors, um, you know, uh, review on it and, and Tom, we only have four minutes. So I just wanted okay. to let you know. I'll wrap it up. So he um, he writes this uh, this letter on September fifteenth, two thousand ten, and Michael Michael Buckner is found dead on the on uh, November twelfth, eight weeks later. So I find, you know, they say if you look for something, you're going to find it, but to me, um, there's a lot here. There's a lot here, and I encourage people to look into it. I mean, so when you have all these facts, the witnesses, the polygraph test, the police, the, the, you know, all the people that saw this, the, the medical records, what happened with my father, that's how our case ended up getting inducted as the first UFO case in, UFO, in history. This is the Berkshire paper, our case being the very first case ever. It was the cover of the Boston Globe. There's the Boston Globe. I mean, this was investigated by by uh, historians. What do you think has gone on? <clears throat> do you think the government has been involved? In I think that um, a lot of people say there's a, a tie between what we saw as an ant and the old ant, the the uh, myths or stories of the ant people. Um, I used to rule that out, thinking, oh, this was just genetically engineered. Um, and I think something was exchanged in our family, because my son does test abnormally high on things. I mean, you can't deny that. There's school records to prove it. So if something was extracted and or mutually exchanged, it would explain why our offspring seem to be so, um, I don't want to overstate this, but my son's test in superior range, way above gifted. And that's with two schools and a third-party test. So there's something there. So I, I, I do okay, but I don't have the IQ or the intuitive side that my son does, just like my brother and his children. So maybe there was something genetic, genetically enhanced or altered or, or there was something there. If that's the case, then that would explain what we saw was genetically engineered which also would make sense that maybe back in the day, that's how we had the ant people that people reference today. Maybe there is a, a connection to that. What I saw was not, in 69, was not what we saw in 60, 67. What we saw in 69 looked very industrial, very military. Did any of those beings that you saw in 69 resemble firemen? I'm sorry? Did any of those beings that you saw in 69 resemble firemen? Firemen? Yeah. No. Like, they look... No, they... Um, the beans that we saw, they were wearing pretty much white, off-white, 
they had a small chin. Um, uh, they they really looked like maybe Orientals without any hair. No eyebrows, okay. no hair, small chin, uh, lanky, but strong. When they grabbed my arm, that was not, that was strong. There was some strength there. So, um, again, I would say that, yes, there was probably a military, uh, some type of uh, privately funded government agency. Um, I'll say one more thing. There's been a lot of talk about the Nike missile sites back then and the Minutemen sites. And they were, they're all over New England in the mountains, but no one ever sees them being buried. Also, we are all, we're all RH negative. Now, back in the 60s, O negative blood, me, I'm O negative. A lot of my family members are O negative. It was the only blood tracked by the U.S. government because it was the universal donor during the years of Vietnam. So here we are. We got the only blood type tracked by the U.S. government, which is O negative. A lot of people feel that there's a that's a universal platform for in, for something that's being done or genetically uh, for genetic engineering with respect because it's universal, which would and here we are surrounded by military manufacturing facilities. And what we saw was definitely uh, genetically engineered. I mean, I mean, it's, to me, it's it's pretty. It's a no brainer. Yeah, no brainer. Folks, we've been speaking with Tom Reed tonight, and he just told us his extraordinary, extraordinary experience and story. www.nightfrightshow.com. As always, folks, just click on tonight's guest picture. That'll take you right to where his website is, where there's a wealth of information there, and you can get in touch with him through there. Don't forget contact in the desert. We have like 15 seconds left. There's something over your left arm I'd like you to show people. Oh, the guitar? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually not mine, but I do have my own guitar line. It's actually over here. If I got, I wouldn't have time to get it. Okay. But uh, oh, there's the music, so we gotta go. Yeah. But thank you so much, Tom, for coming on the show. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you all later. Witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com. <laughs>